Well, good morning. Welcome to Bible Center. My name is Matt Friend. I'm the senior pastor here. It is awesome uh, to see you here. It's awesome to see the different generations coming together to worship the Lord. Uh, We love you and thank God for you. Uh, We also want to welcome those who are joining us online. Stephen tells me about every week a few hundred folks join us online. Uh, Some of our shut-ins unable to make it out to the services. We love you and we're glad you can join in with us. And if you're, those of you who are in the, in the Charleston area and haven't yet visited Bible Center, I'd love for you to see this, uh, these men and women and children who love the Lord and want to impact the city for Christ. You may notice a few people behind me. There's a reason for that. They're not going to jump me. At least I don't think they're going to jump me. Uh, but we gotta, I'm going to ask for a little bit of help today, sharing some examples of what I've been talking about for the last nine weeks from Colossians. And so in a minute, Pastor Richard's going to speak directly to the children. He's going to speak directly to the kids, and we get to listen in as he has an opportunity to share God's Word just to the kids. And so this is a good time for you to want to make sure your kids are listening and ready uh, for what he has to say. And then Michelle is going to speak just to the wives in the room. She'll be sharing some things that God has taught her, and so she'll be sharing God's Word just to the wives. And then Matt Garrison's going to speak just to uh, the husbands and the fathers out of Colossians chapter 3. And so if you're not a husband or if you're not a father, uh, you'll get to listen in and draw principles from that. But then uh, Pastor Mike's going to follow up when sharing about what it looks like at your job for employers and employees. And so if you have a job or have ever had a job, uh, he'll be speaking directly to you and the rest of us can listen in. I want to start this morning by asking how many of you went trunk or or trick-or-treating as a kid? How many of you went trick-or-treating? Okay. Uh, Most of us remember, remember the masks, the plastic sweaty masks You know, I was Googling, looking back at the 80s. The 80s were like notorious for the cheap masks with the two staples and the rubber band, and you could be like anybody you wanted to be. I always wanted to be Rambo. My favorite Halloween is when I got to dress up as Rambo. I tried to talk mom into letting me as an eight-year-old kid go without my shirt on Halloween night, but that was just too cold and that wasn't going to fly. And so back in those days, you know, you made a lot of your own costumes. It wasn't like, you know, a hundred years ago, but still I drew like Sylvester Stallone's pecs on a tan sweatshirt, you know, those days and went out as Rambo in the streets of St. Albans. Trick-or-treating was great. You know, every few houses you have to dip into your barrel, you got to carb up, got to grab a snicker bar to make it through the journey, which I know is what some of our children are going to be doing tonight. But when we think about Halloween, it's good for us as Christians to step back and remember uh, the roots of Halloween and the role it has played in Christianity. Once in a while people will ask, is it okay for Christians to participate in Halloween? And like in all things, there's liberty, Different people see it from different directions. But it's good to understand that Halloween does have pagan roots, at least the idea of the holiday. It was a Celtic holiday uh, thousands of years ago where people would come together to celebrate or observe the passing of summer and the beginning of winter. They believed that the veil between the physical world and the spiritual world temporarily was pierced and the ghosts and the goblins could pass back and forth. And they believed if they dressed up like ghosts and goblins that somehow they would be safe. Well, the Christians seized the opportunity to use the pagan holiday to give the good news of Jesus. 
Christians had a holiday for hundreds of years called All Saints Day, and it was actually in May. And they moved it from May to November 1st just to make sure they could get the gospel at this pagan holiday opportunity. The night before All Saints Day was called All Hallows' Eve or All Saints' Eve. And so actually the name Halloween has Christian roots and it was an opportunity to declare that Jesus is Lord in a very dark world. This is the reason we're having trunk retreat tonight. We want to declare in a very dark world that Jesus is Lord, he created all things, he offers salvation to all men and women, and we want to build relationships in our community through a simple event like Trunk or Treat. Some of the folks who will join us tonight may have never stepped foot on our campus. Maybe you've never been in church a day in their life, and we have a chance maybe for a few brief minutes to welcome them, roll out the welcome mat, and say, we're glad you're here. How many of you are decorating a trunk tonight? You're decorating a car. Anybody? Oh, okay, a lot of you. Good. There's a lot of you. I think we have, John said, almost 100. I think Jane told me we're about 95 cars. And so if you're not sure where you fit tonight, let me tell you what you can do. You can do exactly what I'm doing. What I'm doing is I'm pulling my car up, pretending that I'm dressing up, having a big old bag from Sam's full of candy, and I'm going to be a trunk. Now, I told you I'm going to be Jake from State Farm. I've got a red State Farm shirt. I've got the infamous khakis. I'm ready to go. But don't feel like you have to decorate like to the hill. You just show up, love people in Jesus' name, get a big old bag of candy from Sam's, and it'll be a great evening together. But as people come tonight, or as people come on our campus any day, we want to proclaim the message of Colossians. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is supreme. He deserves first place. Over the last nine weeks, we've looked at three heavy verses from Colossians that show this. Chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Jesus has rescued us from dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Colossians 2, 15. Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Colossians 1, 18. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. What's the main point of Colossians? If we could sum up the last nine weeks, and today is the last day, if we could sum up everything we've said going verse by verse through this book, it would simply be this. Put Jesus first in every part of your life. Put Jesus first in every part of your life. And so as we come to this last Sunday in Colossians, let's ask the question, what does that look like? We use spiritual words and we use religious language, but what does it look like to put Jesus first in every part of our lives? In a moment, these folks are going to tell us from Colossians what that looks like. But let me invite you to open your Bible to Colossians chapter 3, as we read the last few verses 
of this book we've covered for the last two months. Let me invite you to stand out of respect for God's word. Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 into chapter 4. Feel free to follow along as I read. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance of your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, employers, treat your slaves, treat your employees justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, which is what we'll do tonight, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I want to ask Pastor Richard Thompson to come and speak and share what this looks like for our kids. Thank you, Pastor Matt. The passage he just read, if you've noticed, there's some guidelines in there for a household. And I want to start off, not in order, But in verse 20, you see, these guidelines are for every Christian household, and especially for children. In Colossians 3.20, it says this, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, this verse parallels what also is written in Ephesians 6.1 and 2, where it talks about children, obey your parents, and also to honor your parents. I personally believe that in Ephesians, as you are growing up, until you get around age of 18, obedience is the will of God for your life. After 18, then it switches to honoring your parents. And that's a whole other lesson, so you have to invite me back. The verse here, which says, children, obey your parents, the word obey means this. It means to listen, to hearken to a command to obey, to be obedient, and to submit to. The idea, kids, is this. When the Bible says to obey your parents, it means um, heeding, um, sorry, hearing, hearing first, then heeding, which means following through. If your parents ask you to do something, you listen to them, then you follow through the wishes they've given you. This word obey is an action word. It's a command. It's not a suggestion, and it's not an opinion. If, you're ever in, if, you're, if you ever wonder what the will of God is for your life, 
Here it is. Obey your parents. Now, here is something that's foreign to our thinking. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Do you hear this? Delayed obedience is disobedience. And what I mean by delayed obedience is that you, you don't act upon it. You want to argue it. You don't want to do it. That's delayed obedience. God wants us to learn to obey immediately. Now, if delayed obedience was an Olympic sport, because I know some of you, you would be gold medalists. When I think of children obeying immediately, I go back to two Old Testament characters. One of them was Joseph. You see, at one time in Joseph's life as a young man, he was told by his father to go check up on his bros. You see, his bros has told his dad they were going to be in a certain place, but they weren't there. They were in another. And you know the life of Joseph, and I don't have time to go through his whole story, but I love this. It says that he went and did what his father wanted. That's obedience. And if you know Joseph's story, even though he had a rough life, God used him to eventually protect his family. I also think of the young man named David. He too was asked to go to his older bros who was at a war. He was taking some food for him. And when he got there, he found that there was no battle going on because there was this huge giant named Goliath that everyone was afraid of, except David. Now, can you imagine if David told his father, I'm not going to show up. Why do I want to take cheap? My brothers don't even like me. Why do I want to? David didn't have that kind of attitude. He had an obedient attitude. And we know what David did. Not only did he defeat Goliath, but he gave the whole country of Israel, the Israelites, gave them hope in the power of God to defeat their enemies. So I wonder, what great plans does God have for you? You know, as we learn to obey mom and dad, we're learning to obey God. Downstairs, parents, we learned this thing called a guide marker. And our guide marker for today is this, boys and girls. It says, when I choose to obey, then my life will go okay. Some of you may recognize this symbol, but you probably don't recognize this lady. This lady is Carolyn Davis. You see, when she was a student at Portland State, way back in the 60s and 70s, she met a fellow by the name of Phil Knight. Phil Knight was the co-founder of Nike, a new sports apparel company. And he went to her and he said, I'm looking for a symbol that we can remember to represent our company. You see, their competitor, Adidas, already had three kind of marks. And so she came up with the check mark. And, the, and, and Phil told her, he says, I'm not sure I really like it, but I'll let it grow on me. Well, I love this. I read about her, and, and she was paid $35, then later on rewarded some stock, and in 2011, her net worth was up to 643000 just because of a little check mark. Then in 1988, another advertisement agency started by Dan Wyden, he coined a phrase, just do it. And Nike is known for the check mark and just do it. As your parents tell you what to do, kids, here's a great reminder. Think of the Nike symbol. Just do it. 
God has given us this command, and all children need to learn it. When you listen and obey your parents, you're in training to listening and obeying God. Because a happy heart comes from obedience. What kind of heart do you want? Now I want all the kids to stand up where they're at. All of you stand up, just like we do in base camp. I'm going to count to three, and I want you to say the guide marker. One, two, three. Just like downstairs, stereo. It just works. I love it. I don't have any goldfish, parents. I'm sorry. Michelle's going to come now, and she's going to teach us another Christian household guideline. Thanks. When Matt, friend, originally emailed me and asked me if I would be willing to speak to the wives today, I was so honored. I was like, absolutely. And I sent the email before I read my verse. And the verse says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And I was like, of course that's what he wants me to talk about. He is a smart man. (laughs) But when we consider it through Christ and through the eyes of victory, we as wives are going to be happy and victorious. If I'm honest, the word submit can cause something in me to bristle. That's our human pride. But when we see this through the eyes of Christ and through the eyes of what God intended, it is not something that should cause us to feel that way. As Richard said, the um, companion passage to today's is found in Ephesians. And Ephesians 5.33 says, Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Respect is a way in which I relate to my husband, a way that I talk to him or about him. It's the opposite of contempt or disdain. When I honor Richard as the head of our household, it does not mean I check my brains at the door or my opinion doesn't matter or that I live as a doormat. No happy marriage is made up of a dictator and his or her slave. When we are living victoriously through Jesus Christ, though, we are all living in an attitude of submission, as we read in Ephesians 5.21. And that is what really what God wants for us. Um, having Jesus is the game changer, honestly. I was flying back from D.C. recently and was sitting next to a woman on the airplane, and we started talking about our trips and where we had been, and we were both going home, and we were so excited to see our families. And I said something about being married for 30 years, <laughs> And she looked at me and she said, to the same man? (laughs) Yes. My response was, I got a good guy and I am planning to keep him. And she said, I have no idea how anyone can stay married to someone for 30 years. And I thought right away, it's because of Jesus. He makes the difference in our lives. And if you're here today and you have had a marriage that failed, please do not feel like we are standing here in judgment. Life is hard and relationships are messy. But if you're a wife here today, God has a plan for us, and he wants us to be victorious through Jesus Christ. You see, God created men and women very differently from the get-go. No matter what society wants us to think, we are different. We as women, even though we're each unique individuals and different, we are alike in some ways in that as a group, generally, we are the romantics. We want to be loved and adored. We want a man to sweep us off our feet and to love us unconditionally. Men, I'm told, feel loved and honored in a different way, and that's through respect, which to us can sound foreign and maybe even a little bit demanding. But when we understand that God has hardwired them that way, it's much easier to understand. In the process of studying for today, I was so excited to see that modern research backs up exactly what God said. 
Dr. John Gottman, a professor of psychology at the University of Washington, did a 20-year study with over 2,000 married couples. And what he found is that the longest marriages that are the happiest have two key components, love and respect. Exactly what God told us. Dr. Um, Emerson Egriches wrote a book by the same title called Love and Respect, in which he describes something he calls the crazy cycle. When a woman begins to feel unloved, she begins to react toward her husband in a way that's disrespectful. And when a man feels disrespected in his own home, he tends to start reacting in ways that are unloving. And pretty soon, these two people who genuinely love each other are spiraling out of control and don't know where to stop. Any of us can fall victim to that. But what I have learned is that respect, like love, can be unconditional. I think I always thought respect was like trust and you had to earn it. When we treat other people like that, it is hard to respect them. But as I got to thinking about this, I realized I treat my coworkers with respect, the bank teller, the, uh, the clerk at the grocery store. Why not the one human who matters more to me than anyone else? If I know that my husband was a diabetic and needed insulin, I would do everything in my power to make sure he had it every day. So if we know, and now we all do, know that our husbands need to be respected, to feel fulfilled and loved, why wouldn't we provide that? Um, we read in Ephesians 5.21 that we all respect and honor each other. So if we know that, we want to be able to do that. Proverbs 14.1 tells us that a wise woman builds up her home, but a foolish woman tears it down with her own hands. We as wives have so much power over the emotional state in our homes, we need to make very good choices and think about what we're doing. And when we say the two words submit or respect, I think if we consider the author who wrote these words, the God who was willing to step off a throne of heaven, come down here to earth where he submitted himself to suffering and dying for me, he did not write these words as an angry dictator who is still mad at Eve for messing everything up, but he wrote it as a loving father who wanted to give us the very best marriage counseling for free. Wives, respect your husbands, and husbands, love your wives. Matt Garrison is going to come and tell us how husbands can be victorious through Christ. Thank you, Michelle. Paul continues in verse 19. He says, husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them or treat them harshly. Husbands, I want to ask you this question. How many of us have ever had, we won't call it a fight, but let's say a heated discussion with our wives? Let me see your hands. Come on. Come on. A lot of times, thank you for your honesty. A lot of times, if we're honest again, how many of you think have it's been over something really silly? When you look back, yes. One of them, I'm sure, is the toilet paper roll. Is it over or is it under, right? Now, once and for all, we're putting this argument to rest. Check this out with me. This is the original patent. This is the patent for the toilet paper roll. This is what it was designed to go over. Right, so those of us who've argued this way, you were right. Either spouse, you can apologize on your way out for the, it's all good, right? Here's the thing. I remember one day, it wasn't over this, but it was something even, I think, more ridiculous. Back in the day when you had desktop computers, you had miles of wire and cables that you had to kind of connect and everything. I'm doing this. I'm getting frustrated. My beautiful wife comes in, and I don't know what started the fight, but heated discussion, I'm sorry, right? 
And I remember I was such a jerk. I wanted to prove that I was right and it was my fault. I was not serving or loving my wife the way the scriptures say. In this parallel passage that we keep referring to in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul goes a little bit deeper as to what this love actually means. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. This word love in all of these passages is the same word. And he says, and Christ gave himself up for her. This word is an action. It's not some warm, fuzzy feeling or some emotional warmth. We could define it this way, that love is selfless servanthood. Love is selfless servanthood. So husbands, are you loving your wives in this way? Because here in the English language, we use love an awful lot, don't we? I mean, I love my wife, great. I love tacos. Same word, is it in the same way? I mean, I love bacon. Anybody else in here love bacon? Right, amen. But the same word, no. Paul's saying it's so much deeper. And so again, imagine with me, husbands, what does it look like for Christ to be first place in our marriage? Get love is selfless servanthood. Am I putting my wife's needs and her desires ahead of my own? Is that what's going on in yours, in your marriage? So the encouragement from Paul is this. May we do that. May we put our wives' needs and desires ahead of our own. We'll change gears. We'll drop down to verse 21 where Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke, do not aggravate your children lest they become discouraged. And in this culture, fathers were the head of the household. It was a very patriarchal society. The fathers actually had authority even over their adult grown children. It was kind of like what we would refer to as, as a remember as the king when his firstborn would take over that he was king even if he had younger sons. In the same way here, when the father died, the oldest son would take over and become the patriarch of the family, even if he had younger brothers or sisters. So today we're actually talking about heads of household, fathers, mothers, grandparents. If you're raising children, this is for you. And he says, do not provoke. What he's going for here is kind of causing resentment. Do not treat your children in such a way that would cause them to resent. I heard a story of a parent who sees his child come in from school one day, they're very upset, very upset. So as a parent concerned, the parent says, honey, what, what's wrong? He said, I failed a test. Oh, I am so sorry. What, what did you get? He's trying to empathize and sympathize with the child. And they say this, I got a 97. The parent is thinking, okay, a 97 is failing. He's like, I got a couple different options here, how we're going to approach this. So that he decides, okay, honey, if a 97 is an F, then a 98 is a D, and a 99 is a B, and a hunter is a C, and a hundred is a B. What, what do you have to do to get to get an A? I mean, did you have to promise to to wash your teacher's car or something like that? And the child's face, he could tell, was not receiving this grand, brilliant idea of parenting very well. It was causing more stress and anguish. How do I know this happened in this exchange? Because I was that parent. I screwed that one up. It didn't help my child at all in that. And so the, the point I want us to hear from Paul's words is this, is how we treat our children impacts them positively or negatively. 
How we treat our children impacts them positively or negatively. I'm sure you've heard stories in my years in student ministry, I've heard these more than I wish to admit of parents just riding and treating their children so aggressively to where even their own words are saying, my best, it was never good enough for them. It winds up, what ends up happening is they want to get out from underneath you and that was what causes resentment. This is what Paul's the warning in that second part of the verse. Lest they become discouraged. The way that we treat them can cause resentment and what Paul's really going after here is this, is saying, hey, make sure that the way you treat them doesn't cause them not just to resent you, but if you're following Jesus, if you follow God, they'll push that resentment and focus it on God and begin to resent God because of how we treat them. So the main encouragement from this is right here, is let's treat our children in ways that constantly lead them to Jesus no matter what age they are. Let's treat our children in ways that constantly lead them to Jesus no matter what age they are. And now Mike Graham is gonna to talk to us about what it looks like to put Jesus first in the employee-employer relationship. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Matt. So this is Sunday morning, and you decided today to come to church, to worship, to hear the preaching of God's word, and most of you probably coming out tonight to trunk or treat. So you woke up this morning and you gave your day to the Lord. Now, what's gonna happen is Monday's coming around tomorrow, and it's a little bit more difficult to remember to have that same mindset as we start that day. And if you think Monday's hard, after Monday comes Tuesday. And sometimes by Wednesday, you're just trying to get through. You just want the week to be done. Like your focus and your thought of doing this for the Lord sometimes just dissipates and disappears. We all struggle with that. So God's word calls us to give each day, each workday to the Lord, but we struggle. I was a personal trainer for 15 years before I came here, and I would have some days where I would give the day to the Lord, and I'd have other days where I didn't. Some of you might be able to relate to that. So let's say Monday morning I wake up. As a trainer, you start early. You work when other people don't work. So I show up at 5.30 a.m. at the gym, and my first client comes up to me. And every Monday morning, I have the same conversation. Every Monday morning in every gym across the entire country, every trainer has the same discussion. So tell me about the unhealthy choices you made this weekend. That's how you always start. Um, so I asked that to my first client, and we start talking about it. And of course, the conversation always goes kind of the same. Uh, well, I, I had too many glasses of wine on Friday night. I go, okay, all right, how'd Saturday go? Well, I had a brownie. Okay, just a brownie? No trainer, Mike, I had a tray of brownies. I had the whole pan, I couldn't stop eating all the brownies. So on Monday, I really hadn't spent much time with the Lord. My goal was to get to work and get through work. So as I look at my client, I'm thinking, let's make sure that we change their behavior. Let's set them up to burn a ton of calories, get this done and get on to my next client. So my conversation looks like this. Well, let's get back up on the horse. It's Monday, right? Let's have a salad today. Let's make better choices today. And you owe me 20 extra minutes on the treadmill. Okay. So at the end of that workout, my client has received a good workout. They're satisfied, they're happy. I have 10 to 20 more sessions just like that throughout the day. I get to the end of my Monday, my hands are tired, my head's tired, I'm worn out, I worked hard. I clock out, I've made my money, 
I've provided for my family, and I go home. Tuesday morning, I wake up. And unlike Monday morning, I spend a little bit of time with the Lord. I pray. Let's say I open up to Colossians chapter 3 and read a section about how I'm supposed to have a different perspective at work. And as I'm reading, I read stuff like, I'm called to obey my earthly, master, my earthly employers with energy, with intentionality. But even more than that, I'm supposed to work as though I'm working for the Lord with all my heart. I am called to look at my workplace as my ministry. It's an opportunity for me to reflect and represent Jesus to people who desperately need him. So Tuesday I go in and it looks a little different than Monday. My first client approaches me and we still have a similar conversation. I know that they drank too much wine. We get to the fact that it was a whole pan of brownies, not just, a pan, not just one brownie. But instead of just looking at trying to change behaviors, I recognize the fact that there's things going on in their life that they're having a hard time dealing with. And because they don't know how to cope with it, they don't know how to handle it, they're drinking too much wine. They're eating 20 brownies instead of one brownie. So instead of just trying to change their behavior, I recognize that there's a need for me to go deeper with them. So I jump in relationally. I ask them more questions. So why do you suppose you had that fourth glass of wine? Why do you suppose after getting halfway through the pan of brownies, you thought, that's not enough? So we go deeper and I find out that their marriage is struggling. I find out that they're struggling with being a parent. They're having a hard time at work. So now instead of just trying to curb behavior, instead of that whole get back up on the horse mentality, I over time start taking God's wisdom from God's word and start applying it into their life. I don't stand back and start quoting verses because they're not ready for that and that might not be appropriate. But as you spend time in God's word, you start to think like how the Lord wants you to think. But the person that you're with who doesn't know the Lord doesn't think like that. So we take God's wisdom and God's word and start applying it into, their conversa into the conversation, into the hard parts of their life, where they struggle, and we start helping them with God's wisdom, with God's point of view. And then they'll usually ask me at some point, how do you deal with those fighting matches with your spouse? How do you deal with your kids when they just won't obey you? When you have a bad day at work, what do you do? And then I have the opportunity to share it in a different way as a personal testimony. I get to bring in the fact that the Lord is a part of my life and his thoughts matter to me. His word matters to me. His people have an influence in my life. So I get to give a piece of my testimony to them. So over the course of that session, I've worked God's word into the conversation. I've been able to share my own testimony and that session is completely different. I have given that day to the Lord. I've given that session to the Lord. I'm now doing ministry. I'm not just working. So my Monday looked very different than my Tuesday from my point of view. If you were a trainer and you saw me from a distance, you saw my Monday and you saw my Tuesday, I don't look very different from a distance. I'm putting my people through good hard workouts. But the reality is that they are completely different days. Monday, I kind of worked for myself. Tuesday, I worked for the Lord. My goal is to serve him and to honor him. I recognize that work isn't just a place where I go to get a paycheck. I go there to do ministry, to get involved, to buy in relationally with people and slowly present God's word to people who so desperately need him. So at the end of Tuesday, I, I clock out. My hands are tired. My head's still tired, but even my heart's a little bit tired. My heart went to work that day. It's full of joy, but it's tired. I go home. I've provided for my family Tuesday. So for you, Monday morning, what is that going to look like when you wake up and get ready to go to work?
students. You're going to put a backpack on, right? And you're going to head to school. You're in a place where your teachers have authority over you. It's an opportunity to have your school, your office, your hospital, your place of work become your ministry, not just a place to go and make a paycheck and to get things done. So that's work. We're going to talk about some more stuff. So prayer in verse 2 of chapter 4. The version that I looked it up in, it says, devote yourselves to prayer. ESV says, be steadfast in prayer. When I think of the word devote or devotion, if I'm devoted to something, that means everything else kind of falls to the side. And the one thing that is my highest priority takes center stage. So if I want to be a person who's devoted to prayer, that means other things fall to the wayside and my devotion, my focus is prayer. Well, how do I do that? In the verse it says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Being watchful and thankful. If you go into tomorrow and you become watchful, like you're paying attention to what's going on around you, that you're investing into your relationships and you're finding out those hard things that people are going through, there's gonna be an unending number of things for you to be praying for. When you just go through your day and you ignore what's going on around you, yeah, it might be hard to pray. But when you're engaged into your life and every moment matters and every relationship matters, you will have so many things to be praying for. So being watchful sets you up to be a person devoted to prayer. Even while you're talking to someone and you recognize they're struggling, you can be praying for them while you're talking to them. Prayer is a part of your everyday life, Lord willing, moment by moment. Do I do that every day perfectly? I do not. But it's something we can start moving towards as we become more mindful and more present in the moments of our day. And it says we do that with thankfulness. As we begin to become a people who are devoted to prayer and we're watchful and we see God working in our life, in our heart, in the people around us, we will be thankful people. Right after that, Paul actually makes a prayer request. He asks for this church to, he asks for, their prayer, for them to pray for him, and this is his request. Pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray too that I might proclaim it clearly as I should. Paul is in chains. He's sitting in a prison, and his prayer request isn't, pray that God would release me from these chains. Pray that God would open a door so that I might walk out of it. That's not his prayer request. Paul, with really horrendous circumstances, prays, may God open a door for the message to go forth, that people would hear about Jesus, that lives would be changed, and that when I speak it, the man who wrote the book of Romans, that I might have the ability to speak it with clarity. That's his prayer request. I've been with you now for three months. You guys are wonderful. I have thoroughly enjoyed this adventure of becoming your pastor and being your pastor. As I sit in classrooms, as I sit in groups, and the question is asked, how can I pray for you? Most of the prayer requests look like this. And I'm not picking on you, but this is just where it's at. Um, Could you please pray for my aunt? She's sick. Could you pray for my neighbor? He's having a hard time. Could you pray for... I mean, I've heard pets thrown in there. I mean, like, everything gets thrown in there, and usually it's to change circumstances. If Paul is modeling for us what our greatest needs are, and he has a pulse on what we should be asking for in terms of prayer requests, it just sounds a little different from that. We need to be praying for the ants. We need to be praying for our neighbors. We need to be praying for coworkers. But their greatest need may not be their physical need. Their greatest need might be their spiritual need. In fact, 
I'm pretty sure of it. So our prayer request might look like this. Pray for my aunt, she's having surgery, but pray that she might walk deeply with the Lord as she goes through that surgery. I've had a hard day at work. I've had a hard week at work. In fact, this has been the worst week of my, worst year of my life at work ever. But my prayer request is that God would use that to open doors in my workplace to share the gospel and pray that when I share it, that I would share it with clarity. My request to the Lord is that when we start asking each other, how can I be praying for you, that we start sounding more like Paul, that we become so excited about what God is doing spiritually in our lives and in the city, that when we have the opportunity to pray for one another, that our prayer requests look like that. That's my hope. That's my prayer last section. Paul says, be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to, that you may know how to answer everyone. We're called to make the most of every opportunity. So when I described my Tuesday workday, I was engaging with people. I was being relational. When Paul talked about prayer, we were called to be watchful, aware of what's going on around us. The only way we can make the most of every opportunity is that we're aware of the opportunities in front of us. God has called us to be present, actively present in our days, relationally, knowing what's going on. So the way that it helps me to remember it is I believe that God's called me to be present moment by moment in my day and then to make God's presence known. Lord, help me be present relationally and make your presence known. If we become a people like that, we become a people who are making the most of every opportunity. We become a people who are speaking God's word through open doors with clarity. That is my hope, that is my prayer for us. We've committed together to be a church that Charleston can't live without. That's one of our steps to do that. This message was putting Monday in its place. To put Monday in its place means that we take Monday and we put it at the feet of Jesus. So what does that look like? Tomorrow, as you go to school, as you go to work, as you lace up your shoes, as you put your belt on, let's do it for the Lord. As you pray, be mindful. Be actively mindful. Devote yourselves to it. Make the most of every opportunity. Pray that God would use you in this city. And we take Monday, Tuesday, and every day of the week and put it at his feet, putting it in its place. Matt, would you close us up? Amen. Thanks, Mike. I'm going to invite you to stand. Let's all stand together. This is a big moment, the end of two months of going verse by verse through the book of Colossians. I want to invite the band to go ahead and come out and get us ready for our last couple of songs. As they're getting ready, there's really three ways to respond to a series like this. One way is to leave determined and to say, I can do this. I know I can do this. Please don't leave this series that way. Because you can't do it. I can't do it. There's no way we can ever measure up to perfection uh, or even anywhere close to it. The second way to leave a series like this is to say, man, I am there, I'm such a loser. There's no way I'll ever measure up. There's no way I can ever live the Christian life, so I'm not even going to try. That's also not a gospel response. But this morning as we sing these last two songs, let me invite you right where you are. Make this your private invitation between you and the Lord. You can pray if you want to kneel, if you want to come and pray, you can do that. But those of us who sing, let's sing with all of our hearts, knowing that only Jesus can help us live the Christian life. We've all fallen short. We're all broken people. 
I tell our staff, we're all jacked up and we're on a journey. And so you join us on the journey and say, Lord, I know there's no way I can do it myself, but because of Jesus is who he is, he can help me grow and take one step this week, one step next week to show Charleston, to show the Kanawha County what it looks like to put Jesus first. Let me pray and then we'll sing. Father, thank you for my church family. There's nobody I would rather spend Sunday morning with than the men and women and children here. Help us to put Jesus first because he is worthy. It's in his name we pray. Amen.